O God of hosts, your blessed saints are now at rest with you. And they overcame the world by your strength. So strengthen us to follow in their footsteps. And after this life, partake with them in your glory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. So, happy Halloween. It's kind of a weird thing to say at church, or at, from Christian to Christian, happy Halloween. I don't know if you've ever been greeted with happy Halloween before. I sure haven't. But I want to greet you with happy Halloween. Because Halloween simply means, if you break down the words of it, I mean, it's become sort of this like demonic almost, but very dark, sometimes just innocent and fun um, holiday in our culture. But when you, when you actually stop and think about where the origin of holidays came from, um, holidays are created for religious reasons. Holy day is what actually holiday means. And of course, now we have a bunch of holidays that have nothing to do with Christianity. But Halloween, we can call a holiday even if that makes you uncomfortable because you don't celebrate it maybe the way culture does, but it's originally a Christian holy day. Hallow means holy or saint. Saint is a Greek version of the word holy. Um, Like you hear sanctus in that. Um, So hallow is holy and in is eve. So it's the eve of the holy. It's the eve of the saints. And on November 1st is the day of All Saints Day. Now, um, that might sound weird or out of touch with some of us. Um, Like, what do you do on All Saints Day? Do you light a candle and pray to a saint? Do you ask them to intervene for you? What do you do on All Saints Day? Um, well, I'll tell you what we don't do. We don't, we don't pray for the dead. We don't uh, ask, we don't pray to the saints. Um, we're not doing that. Let me tell you, as far as I understand, the, the simple origins of All Saints Day. It started with when the church was very young and they only basically knew of their own local congregations and were persecuted, as they were early on. As one of the members of their local community was martyred, they would mark that death date on their calendar as a day to annually remember and celebrate their life. And it's interesting they chose their death, right? Not their birth. Because their death and martyrdom was their actual birth in in the presence of God. Um, So they would do that annually. Now, as the church began to grow and other local congregations got to know one another and share their heroes who have died for the faith, some began to celebrate the, the days of other martyrs. And so, as you can see, gradually the calendar begins to be filled up. And then, of course, when the great persecutions come in the third century by the Roman emperors, there are so many martyrs that you, you just can't keep track of them anymore. And in addition, you've had so many heroes of the faith after the persecutions who weren't martyred, but the church wanted to recognize as examples of how to live and pursue God that soon this idea came up that, you know what? We have certain days we remember, like, the special, like, our heroes. It's kind of like the hall of faith, you know? Um, But let's have a day where we remember all those who have gone ahead before us into the glory of the Lord. And so All Saints Day was established. Um, I'm not sure when or why on November 1st, but that is what has stuck. 
is November 1st. Now, just so you know, in the Eastern tradition, the Orthodox tradition, they celebrate All Saints Day on the Sunday after Pentecost, which actually makes a lot of sense. It's right after Pentecost, the birth of the church. Let's remember all the saints on this day. Um, I didn't realize that we accidentally do something like that already. You might remember that we celebrated St. Stephen Day after Pentecost. So, and that's something that I'm going to continue to do. We pray for the persecuted church on that Sunday. Um, well, what do you know? <laughs> so uh, that's, that's, as far as I understand, that's the basic origins to All Saints Day. So... Um, why are we doing this? Um, I want to wish you a happy Halloween because the saints in glory, the ones who have gone ahead of us, remind us that we are going to participate with them in the same glory one day. So we're approaching the end of the Christian year, and I don't mean December 31st. That's the end of the secular year. The end of the Christian year is... Well, it's uh, November 27th, because November 28th is the first day of Advent. And in the Christian year, Advent is our new year, November 28th. That's when we turn the year over. And I love this tradition, because on one hand, we have for year, I have for years lived, January 1st is when I have my New Year's resolutions, and I get my act together, and boom, that's the day. Um which is good. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. But think about what we do. We put our efforts at the forefront. We say what, how we want to improve ourselves. It's not necessarily a very Christian approach to ourselves, is it? But Advent is all about... By the way, Advent is a Latin word for coming. It's about the coming of the Lord. And we begin the church year with four weeks before Christmas waiting and expecting and preparing ourselves for the coming of the Lord. How different that is, that we start in a posture of helplessness and waiting on Emmanuel to come. That's how we get to start our year. All that to say that we are now about four weeks away from our new year, Advent, which means we're at the end and how, how, what a better way for us than to look at the end of our Christian year by looking to our destiny, by remembering where we're headed so that at the end of our lives, we know where we're going. That's, that's the idea. So that's why for the next three weeks, we're going to be um, looking at the great cloud of witnesses. So that saying comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I will read it to you. Therefore... And he says, therefore, because he had just named all these people who lived by faith. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so easily. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. But you're not doing this on your own. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter or the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so there the author of Hebrews says, we have a lot of examples surrounding us. Let us run with them. But Christ is the example of examples. Taking the cross Um, But here's what didn't hit me until I was thinking about this recently and preparing for this series. 
cloud, the great cloud of witnesses. Why are they called the cloud of witnesses? And then it hit me because the cloud in the Old Testament always spoke of God's glory. Do you remember when Moses finished building the tabernacle? It says that, this is Exodus 40 verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Then when Solomon built the temple centuries later, we read the same thing. First Kings chapter eight, verse 10. And when the priests came out of the holy place, that was the meeting place in the tabernacle is the holy place in the temple. When the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And then we do not see any other record of this cloud coming. When the temple's rebuilt in the time of Jesus, there's no scriptural or historical record of this cloud filling the temple. But you know what we do have a record of? The transfiguration, where Christ on the mountain had the cloud surround him and the Father's voice spoke, this is my son, hear him. But notice also who appeared with him and the cloud. Moses and Elijah, the saints in glory. So then here in Hebrews 12, we're told about the cloud of witnesses. So this cloud of witnesses means the saints in glory. The cloud means they're in the glory of the Father. They're with him. Because when we die, we don't die. We are alive in the presence of the King of Kings. And this glory is surrounding us as well. So that's, that's why I want us to get to know um, some of these heroes who have finished their races before us. Um, because if you're like me, um, I don't blame Calvary Chapel. I actually just blame Protestantism mostly. Or we don't often look at saints because mostly we think the church started with Martin Luther, but there's actually 1,500 years before him of Christians. So um, I was very, like, I only knew of Charles Spurgeon and of... Uh, the Elliots and George Whitfield, like some important figures in our American history, some of them, C.S. Lewis. Um, anyways, I only knew some of these names growing up, and then I started reading church history. I'm like, whoa, this guy's amazing. Whoa, that guy did some crazy things. I can't, I don't feel like a Christian when I look at these people. And so I think it'd be good for us to get to know some of our brothers and sisters in the great family and great kingdom of heaven. So that's the aim, okay? But we're going to start with Job. I'm going to start with one in the scriptures because we have a book to finish. And Job, <laughs> Job, Job is a saint. We just call him Saint Job the patient. Now, why do I say that? I'm not, I'm not determining that Job lived a life worthy of um, our emulation. Uh, the Bible says that. Consider, first of all, God commending Job at the end, saying, like, look, Job has spoken what is right of me. But then we have in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 12, we have this, Ezekiel 14. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, and saying, Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut it off 
and cut off from it man and beast, even if, he's saying, I determine this for Jerusalem, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, nothing can stop it, and this is a scenario he gives. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in the land, they would deliver only their own lives by their righteousness. Even if these three holy ones were in the land, their prayers couldn't stop what God was bringing. Their righteousness couldn't stop what God was bringing. Here, Job is mentioned as one of the three examples that, according to Ezekiel, are great examples of holiness. Uh, Then James chapter 5. The the New Testament mentions Job as well. So in James 5 verse 7, he's calling to the church to be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Then he says some things about farmers are patient to wait for their crops to come. And then in verse 11, James 5 11, he says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So church, I want you to be patient until the coming of the Lord. How have we had to been, how, how we have had to be patient for the coming of the Lord. But then James, as an example of patience, says, look at Job. Job was very, very patient. He was steadfast in his faith. So patience, we don't always think of patience in the way James is using it. Um, we kind of think of patience on a superficial level. Like, it takes five minutes for me to brew a, a cup of black tea. What do I do in those five minutes? I want it now. Patience. Okay. When you're at Stater Brothers, I bag on this one a lot because they just gotten so bad. <laughs> the line of Stater Brothers. You got to have patience when you're in line, wherever you are, when you're in line. You got to have patience while you're in traffic. Yes, those are some forms of patience. But the patience that we're talking about as a virtue goes far beyond this. In fact, the root for patience is the same root for passion. Both of them mean suffering. And we actually see this in our English usage. We call people in hospitals patients. They're not patients because they sit in the waiting room. Although that can be bad too. They're patients because they're suffering. Because they're under someone's care to help them not suffer. Or one of the older terms used for patience is long suffering. That's patience. Job suffered long. Patience is a steadfast persevering in faith that is not put off by obstacles. Nothing stops it. That means you will have some pain. That means you will suffer along the way if you're going to commit and hold fast to something no matter what. And that is what James means by be patient, brothers, like Job. So how was Job patient? You may think he didn't seem patient. He was screaming at everyone. He was crying out for help. Don't imagine patience as just sitting there quietly, meekly waiting for something to happen. That's not the patience we're talking about. The patience of Job was demonstrated primarily in two ways. And the first is that Job was patient in warfare. He, in other words, was attacked, but he did not stop 
pursuing God despite the attack. Okay? Job, sometimes we look at the book of Job and his character as this model for human suffering. Like, oh man, I'm going through some really bad things. Let's look to Job for help. Please understand that Job didn't just suffer in a general sense. Job was directly attacked by Satan. Job was, if you will, persecuted by Satan. And I say that because the reason Satan attacked Job's health and wealth and made his life miserable through his miserable comforters, through their words, and through Elihu's antagonism, the reason I can say that is because Satan said, doesn't Job fear you for nothing? In other words, the whole reason that, this, that Satan attacked Job was because he feared the Lord. If Job didn't fear God, Satan would have said, I'm going to go attack someone else who fears God. This is diabolical persecution. And sometimes it gets played out in flesh and blood as the demons work through humans to persecute Christians. But our primary persecutor is always Satan. And Job in this warfare was patient. Because when, when Satan takes his health and his wealth, he does not curse God. Instead, it says that he prostrated himself and worshiped God. When his wife said, curse God and die, he did not curse God. When the friends encouraged him to just give in, confess some secret sins in order to get God to bless you again, Job was adamant. He saw in all of this, I am not bending my integrity. I, there, I'm not going to just give some cheap confession in order to get God on my side again. There's something going on and I am going to persevere through this. Satan wants to persecute you and wants to persecute me. I think sometimes we belittle this idea because we live in a materialistic world and we've kind of brushed over the spiritual realm and just identified everything that happens as uh, neurological responses. As if everything was just firing new, new, what are they called? Neurons in our brains, just synapses. There you go firing in our brains. There's more to the world than that, as the book of Job so profoundly shows us. It's almost apocalyptic in the sense that it raises the curtain and shows us what's really going on. Jesus said this to Peter. This is Luke 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. It's exactly what he did to Job. Sifted him like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail like Job. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But notice what Jesus didn't do. He didn't say, I have demanded that Satan not touch you. Persecution is part of our purification. It's the testing of our patience to see if we can, like the great cloud of witnesses, run our race with perseverance. First Peter 5.8 Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There he is. He's after us. 
Satan persecutes us for being believers, so don't count it odd when you suffer. Peter said that in 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So, brothers, sisters, when we suffer, when we are attacked because of our faith in God, when things come against us, when the devil's working against us, don't be surprised. In fact, Peter later then says, rejoice that you're partaking in the sufferings of Christ. Rejoice that you're being persecuted for your faith in God, that you were found worthy to have Satan up in the divine council say, have you considered Rita? Job was patient in warfare. Second, he was patient in waiting. (laughs) He really was. He waited and waited and waited. He never gave in to the friend's lies. He waited for God to come and speak for him. And last week we saw that God finally did. What this means is Job chapter 3, he cries out for answers. He never really gets answers, but he cries out for God. Elihu says, no one in heaven is going to come and talk to you, Job. And then, so from Job 3 all the way to Job 38, Job waits for God. And there's phrases all over. Won't he just come talk to me? I want an audience with him. Why is he silent? Why has he turned his back on me? Job just wants a restored relationship with God. And finally it comes. But for all of those chapters, those weeks of studying that, and those long minutes, we all read many lengthy passages and speeches together. Through all of that time, Job is waiting He's waiting. He's waiting for an end. He's waiting for God to step in and answer and give him some relief. And here's what happens when we wait like that. If you are willing to wait, rather than take a shortcut and fix things, if you're willing to wait, what happens is we build up a longing. And when we build up a longing, we tend to reach for that what we're longing for. In other words, waiting produces longing and longing produces prayer. Those who wait on the Lord are those who are praying for the Lord. They're constantly looking for him, constantly waiting for him to come and intercede in their lives or intervene in their lives and intercede on their behalf. Job was waiting and notice that he does this. Now, sometimes the language, you might be like, well, Job's a little raw with God and accusing God. But wait a minute. Think about this. Job is turning in his waiting and suffering to God. And that's what prayer is. It's our turning to God wherever we're at, whether we're in the ash heap or whether we're in the high places, turning to God is prayer. And Job again and again turns to him rather than turning to shortcuts to alleviate the suffering he's going through. Today, when we suffer, we choose to numb ourselves with television or with, um, they call it comfort food for a reason, or more extreme cases, substance abuse, or even suicide. Job takes none of these options. He waits on the Lord, and we hear it in his prayers and in his words. And he never gives up praying. He started praying for his sons in the beginning of the book. He prayed through the dialogues, crying out to God. And then at the very end, he prays for his friends. He prays for them. He prays. He prays for his persecutors. That's faithfulness. So was it worth the wait, Job? Did, he, did your patience pay off? Yes. 
Job 42 tells us this. Job 42 also speaks to us on another layer than just the historical Job. So let's look at it. Job chapter 42. We see his humility. We read this last week, but it's good to see it again because this is a keystone moment in Job's uh, progression in his likeness to Christ. Um, Job 42 verse 1. This is after God had spoken to him. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He's quoting God, talking about him. (laughs) Then he answers, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Again, quoting God, Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Then Job answers, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And there Job, as low as he can get to the ground, in a position of humility, reaches the climax and the highest level of maturity in wisdom and in the Christian life. Humility. That's where it's at. More on that from last week's message. You can go back and listen to that. So we see Job's humility, but then we see his acceptance in verse 7. His acceptance by God. All this time he's been wondering, has God turned his back on me? Has he given up on me? But now finally God says, no, Job, I haven't. So 42 verse 7, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, remember he was the first of the three friends, so he's sort of representing all three of them. He says, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore... Take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up burnt offerings for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you. And I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Was Job in the right all along? Yes. He was interceding for others at the beginning, making offerings for his children. Now he's interceding for others and making offerings for them. The friends are coming to Job as a sort of priest one who's standing between them and God. Job is a symbol of what the Christian becomes, the royal priesthood, Peter calls us, that we stand between God and the world. Another way to think about um, the whole idea of the great cloud of witnesses and the saints in glory is if you took the temple, you have the very, in the very middle, right? The holy of holies, the place no one can go, where God's presence abode, abided, where it was. And there was his throne. And that's like heaven. That's where he is worshipped by the angels and by the saints and all the hosts of heaven. But then in the holy place, the part outside of the holy of holies, but where there's the candle stand and the table showbread and the altar of incense, where the priests would go in and offer prayers. That's like the church. We're the light of the world. We're eating the bread of life. We're praying for the world. And then the outer courts, where there's the altar, 
which would represent where Christ died for the sins of the world. He's the access point for the world to come into the church. You have the altar there, and then you also have the bronze laver after the altar where the priests would wash the blood and gore off of themselves before they go into the temple. Uh, into the, yeah, into the temple. That's, that's a symbol of his cross, the blood and the water, the baptism for which the world comes from the outside into the church. And so Job is not in the outer courts. Job is like the priest in the temple. Between the holy of, the holy of holies and the outer courts, Job is bringing the friends to God. You and I will one day cross through the veil of death and be in the holy of holies with our savior forever and ever. But until then, the altar of incense stands between us and the veil. And we are to be the light and the intercessors for our friends, whether they're more like foes or more like family. Job's role is our role before we reach our destiny. Um, that's his acceptance. So we see that God accepted him. God justified him, is the way the New Testament says it. God accepted him as part of the family of God. Then finally, we see Job's reward. Job's reward, it's all from God, it's blessing, but this is very important to see that the book doesn't just end. God actually brings Job to another level. So in 42 verse 10, listen to his blessings. Much of this is going to be exactly what he had, but doubled. Some of it's going to be the same, but different. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job, pause first of all. It reminds me that you and I may not, Jesus tells us very, in multiple places, very strongly, if you do not forgive others, your heavenly father will not forgive you. And here Job has prayed for his friends. He's forgiven them. And now he's entering, if you will, into a type of his glory to come. We must pray for our persecutors this is our responsibility, or we do not know the love of Christ. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord, for, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. It's like a reunion. And they're having a feast. And they showed him sympathy and comfort and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, twice as much, 6,000 camels, twice as much, 1,000 yoke of oxen, twice as much, and 1,000 female donkeys, twice as much. He had also seven sons, same number, and three daughters. So he got the same number of sons and daughters back, but it's different this time. Um, verse 14, he called the name of the first daughter, Jemima, and the name of the second, Keziah, and the name of the third, Karen Hapuk. All three names, which we will be calling our children, right, Brittany? Our next three kids. I'm just kidding. Um, but those are interesting because Jemima means turtle dove, Kaziah means cassia, which is highly valued cinnamon. And Karen Hapak, one commentator said it, means something like black eye makeup. So like really like striking facial um, paint and striking person. Uh, so verse 15 tells us what their names mean. Basically, their names mean they're very beautiful. And verse 15 says that. 
In all the land, there were no women as so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father, now this is interesting, their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers, which totally breaks social norm. Sorry, ladies, but back then you married into an inheritance. You wanted to marry a guy that had inheritance, but you didn't receive inheritance from your father. The brothers, your brothers would. Um, but here, these, these daughters receive an inheritance from their father. That's how wealthy Job is at this point. He has lots to give. And I can't help but see in this that our heavenly father gives the inheritance of the kingdom to both his sons and his daughters. He also has the marriage supper of the lamb for us. We're going to be reunited with those that we had lost in our sufferings. Like these are things that are happening to Job that we can see little shadows, very tiny little hints of what awaits us in the coming glory. Verse 16, and after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. And if you want to know, the Septuagint is when the um, Jews translated their Hebrew scriptures into Greek. This was about 150 years before Jesus. And it was the Bible that the church read was the Septuagint. Um, The Septuagint actually adds to verse 17, and Job will be raised up with the dead at the last day. Interesting little comment that they thought they should add to the Bible. Um, Not saying that that's, you know, inspired words, but uh, that's, that would have been in the text that the early church read. Um, so Job is apparently, according to them, definitely a saint. That was their take on it. Okay, so this is cool. Job's reward. His livestock doubled. His daughters are really awesome and beautiful. And um, obviously of great stature because they're receiving inheritance. Um, but Job's restoration, beyond the fact that this happened to him, reminds us of three other levels. It reminds us of Israel, who went into exile and suffering. But one day, the prophets told him, God will restore our fortunes and it will be better than it ever was. For we will be ruling over all the nations and they will come to our mountain and ask to worship the Lord with us. That's what the prophet said over and over while Israel was suffering in exile. One day, God will restore your fortunes. Actually, one of the Psalms we read tonight happened to actually mention that. So when Israel comes back from exile, they're restored. And that is, of course, fulfilled uh, mostly in going to be at the end of time, but partially in the church too, as the nations are coming to God through Israel. Um, but um, by the way, um, in the Hebrew Bible, Job is not early in the Old Testament like ours is. Ours is before Psalms. Job in the Hebrew Bible is placed toward the end. It's one of the last books. And the reason for that is that they saw Job as a story of themselves going through suffering and ultimately going to be restored at the end. Um, And of course, this happens. So second layer is that this happens in Christ. Christ, as the ultimate Job, dies. He suffers, the innocent sufferer. But then he's raised from the dead and he ascends to the right hand of the Father where he rules with him. And this is something that we have to look forward to as well, is that one day we will be raised and we will rule with Christ and we will share in glory. 
And that is another layer that we see in this passage of Job. As I've already hinted to you, some of the implications you can kind of see like, wow, this is in a way a shadow of the glory that we will receive as well. Um, Don Carson said that this chapter in Job is the Old Testament equivalent to the New Testament anticipation of a new heaven and a new earth. And Christ has made it clear to us that whatever it costs us to follow him, it will be worth it. He told Peter, this is Matthew 19, verse 27. Peter says to Jesus, uh, look, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to Peter and the disciples, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. A hundredfold. Job received twofold here. Jesus is saying a hundredfold. Romans 8.18, is it worth it? Well, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And 2 Corinthians 4.17, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Job, was it worth it? If it was worth it for Job, how much more then, according to the promises of Scripture, is it for us? There is no suffering that is not worth what's to come. There is no degree of patience that we can't tolerate if we keep our eyes on what's to come. The Bible is not shy about the fact that God rewarded Job and he's going to reward his saints. So how are we to be patient like Job? How does this patience work? I want to show three things about patience that maybe will help us in our lives. First, patience is something that possesses an even mind, gives you equilibrium in your mind, and therefore gives you possession of yourself. It's like self-control. Patience possesses an even mind. This this is from um, St. Augustine of Hippo's uh, essay on patience. He said... Patience tolerates evil with an even mind. Patience tolerates evil with an even mind. So here's what he means. Because Job is tolerating evil. An even mind approaches it the way Job did. But an uneven mind is going to go in one of two different directions. See, the opposites of patience are wrath or sloth according to Augustine. So, an even mind. Job could have looked at the evil and burst out against it and try to combat the evil with evil. For example, when his friends pile on him how wrong he is, he could have cursed his friends, and he could have cursed God and his wife and everyone who was around and not helping him. He could have cursed everyone, gotten on Facebook and done a curse blast left and right. But he didn't. He didn't. Instead, he prays for his friends. 
He could have gone to the other side of slothfulness, laziness, and said, it's too hard, I give up. I give up, I'm not following God anymore. I'm no longer a God believer. I'm going to go worship that stone or whatever pagan thing's going on. I'm going to indulge myself in vice and sin because my righteousness hasn't paid off. He could have done all that. But Job pushes through by persistently praying in his patience. That's what we mean by an even mind. Job sees the evil, but he doesn't rage against it and he doesn't get beaten down by it. He keeps going steadily. Second, patience, and I like this, patience eyes eschatology, not to the temporary. Eschat what? Eschatology. It's the study of the end times. It's what's going to come at the end of the age. The glory, our glory is our eschatology. He eyes that, not the temporary. It's so easy if we keep our eyes on what's happening here and now, these brief fleeting moments, to always want to conquer the moment. Like when this happens, I'm going to do a quick fix on this, and I'm going to do a quick fix on that, and we're constantly putting fires out, but never having the patience to look beyond the moment and ask, but what's better for me in the long run? See, quick fixes and trying to conquer things in the moment is actually an act of our flesh. But patience trusts that God has purposes and processes behind everything that happens to us. And so rather than saying, why am I going through this? I'm going to get out of it. We can look beyond what's happening to us now and say, whatever God's doing, and I don't understand it, I'm going to keep going because I see the glory. I see my eschatology. I see my destiny. And that is worth it. It's worth the wait. It's worth the perseverance and patience. So N.T. Wright puts it this way. Those who believe in God and the creator and in the eventual triumph of his good purposes for the world will not be in a hurry to grasp at quick fix solutions in their own life or in their vocation and mission. Though they will not be slow to take God-given opportunities when they arise. So patience doesn't grab. It's not in a hurry. It's not trying to control things. It allows God to lead even if it's slower or less powerful than we want. But at the same time, it's not passive. And it says, well, patience, I'm just going to shit on my butt until God comes back. Um, no, because it also, he said that when the opportunity arises, when God opens a door, the patient person who waited for it goes through it. So there's always action, but it's not our action. It's our response to God's action. Yeah, I think that's the best way to look at patience here. We respond to God's action. We don't force his hand. We don't manipulate him. We don't say, well, if we do this and God will bless that. We look for where he's working and we respond. That's the patient approach. We don't panic also. Patience doesn't panic. Oh no, what do we do? We got to fix this. No, wait on God. And third, so we've seen um, patience possesses an even mind. Patience eyes eschatology, not the temporary. And third, Patience humbly accepts God's will. It humbly accepts God's will. What I have found in my life is that impatience, impatience, is the result of self-importance and pride. Because what happens when I get impatient is that I recognize the world around me, whether it's the circumstances and things that happen or the people 
they don't seem to see my plans quite as importantly as I do. And so I get frustrated. And when I get frustrated, I get impatient. And when I get impatient, I either get slothful or wrathful. Ouch. Because of pride. So patience humbly accepts God's will in the here and now, day to day, moment to moment. And brothers and sisters, I know this because I'm telling you what happens to me on a regular basis. My wife is really good at telling me when I'm in these places. She doesn't use that same language. She just says it in her way. And I realize, man, as I've prayed and looked into this, it all stems from pride. That I have plans and I have expectations. And when these things aren't met, I'm offended. That's not patience and that's not humility. So I've really come to love this prayer. I've shared this with you once before. I've shared it with others because I love it and I think you will love it too. It's the morning prayer by St. Philaret of Moscow, 19th century. Um, I don't know who he was, to be honest. I just love his two prayers that I know. That's all I know about him. Maybe we should do one on him. I don't know. Um, the morning prayer, St. Philaret of Moscow, goes like this, and we'll close the message with this prayer. So this is one way we can be praying to accept God's will as whatever happens to us in the day. Oh Lord, grant me to greet the coming day in peace. Help me in all things to rely upon your holy will. In every hour of the day, reveal your will to me. Bless my dealings with all who surround me and teach me to treat all that comes to me with peace of soul and with the, current, with the firm conviction that your will governs all. In all my deeds and words, guide my thoughts and feelings. In unforeseen events, let me not forget that all are sent by you. Teach me to act firmly and wisely without embittering or embarrassing others. And give me the strength to bear the fatigue of the coming day with all that it shall bring. Direct my will. Teach me to pray. Pray you yourself and me. Amen.